really wish this thing would record. There it goes, it heard me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss the strange and unusual. This is episode number five of our globe tr- globe trotting <laughs> series, seeking out the weird, the unexplained, and the devious from around the world. I'm Casey. And I'm Roya. And today we are heading to Iran. I'm going to be telling you a little bit about the Dune of the Jinn. And I am going to be talking about a variety of mythical birds um, from Iranian and Persian mythology. I like a burb. Well, good. There's like three. So. Are they the burbs from uh, like Pokemon? Uh, One is similar, probably. Is one a phoenix? Yeah. Actually, a couple of them are phoenixes. Oh, fancy phoenix. Oh, you fancy, huh? (laughs) But you were wanting some girl power stories, and I feel like my my first uh, bird is a girl power bird story. Okay, cool. Are yours generally uh, happier birds? Yeah, mine are just pretty, like... The first one is definitely benevolent. The other ones are yeah, nothing scary, nothing like overly violent. Mine's not like super scary either, but it you know it has to deal with the gin, so it's a little yeah, they're kind of jerks. A little more yeah, yeah. Uh, so who would you like to go first then, or should I go first and then you lighten it up? I can go first. Whatever. All right. So um, the first bird that caught my interest uh, is her name is called the Sea Merge. And she is a benevolent mythical bird from Iranian literature and mythology. Um, She is sometimes viewed as a phoenix of sorts. Uh, Later on, I'll kind of talk about she will plunge herself into fire every 1,700 years or so. She can be found all throughout history and including other areas of the world, um, extending even to the Byzantine Empire. Basically, wherever the Persian Empire stretched to, you can find the Seamurg. And she is also kind of the... The idea is... So you know the medical crest like the snakes wrapped around the what is it hermes's wand thing scepter yeah the one of the ideas about the wings that are sometimes depicted on that is that they're supposed to be the sea merges wings because the sea merge Mm -hmm. was a healer she started a She's a healer, and she spread um, seeds all over the world. And it follows this Iranian belief that the cure for every illness, for every disease, is able to be found naturally. We just don't know how to like synthesize the seeds and the 
plants and things into the right kind of medication. And so that's where I remember as a kid, oh yeah, spoiler alert, um, I'm half Iranian, and so some of this will be referencing back to things that I have grown up with. My father is Iranian, my mother is American, and um, my dad and his family always had has had a very strong preference to natural medications, to letting things run its course whenever, you know, there was a bad toothache or a bad stomach problem. It was always, you know, drink this horrible concoction of herbs and plants, and then suddenly it would be completely gone. Like, oh, you've got a toothache? Go put a tea bag in your mouth, and it will be gone. Yeah. And... I always heard clove. Yeah. So, it has, the, the best way is black tea, but if you just get, like, the individual black tea bag and just hold it in your mouth over wherever is sore, um, it has mm-hmm. clove in it and other things that are kind of a natural um, sedative like a low, low dose sedative. And so it will just, you know, fill that area and help numb the pain. But it's also just tea. So it will help, you know, it doesn't taste that bad. It's bitter. But if you like tea, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's definitely better than the toothache. Yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. like when my, my brother and my mom and dad went to Iran, Omid got a super, super bad... They don't know if it was a stomach bug or if it was just that difficulty that some people have going somewhere else and trying the food. Just He got really, really sick. Couldn't keep anything down. It was almost, mom said it was almost like a flu. And my mm. grandma, my mom on June just came in with uh, this like, awful, awful smelling and tasting medication. And Omid had to like just take it like a shot basically in one big drink and mom said that it cleared everything up almost instantly and he didn't have any other issues really. So Iran has always been on the forefront of a lot of things. And one of the big things is like holistic medication and things like that and trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what kind of plants can be used in order to help medicate help resolve problems and things like that and the seamerg is kind of the epitome of that and so she's depicted as a winged bird that is gigantic enough to carry off an elephant or a whale so freaking big yeah or she is peacock like in body with the head of a dog sometimes the head of a human and claws of a lion. Um, she is inherently kind and is pretty much, even though it's not ever clearly stated, um, she is considered by most accounts that I found to be female, mainly because when she's part human or part mammal, like she suckles her babies like a mammal does. Okay. Well, men can't do that. So she has to be female. God, I hope not. Um, She really, really hates snakes, which is a thing I've noticed in quite a few of the Persian mythology. 
snakes are just not good news, which is funny because my dad is also really afraid of snakes. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if it's just a Persian thing that's just kind of indoctrinated into them, probably because, you know, snakes are dangerous and it's better to be afraid of them and to just leave them alone than it is to, you know, fuck around with them because that's how you get bit. That's fair. Yeah. On a on a aside, it was the funniest thing. My dad called me one time. I was, I don't remember if I wasn't living at home at the time or yeah, I had to just not been living at home. And he called me and he was like, "Roya, I need you to come home right now." And I'm like, "Is everything okay?" He was like, "Yes, everything is okay. I just need some help." And so I come home, and he's in the garage. He's got a broom, and he is like. There's there's a rat snake, like a small little baby rat snake, completely not dangerous or anything. And he's got a broom and he's like trying to push it out the door. And he's like apologizing in the garage. It's not even in the house. He's like apologizing to it and like talking to it and just like trying to reason with it about like, just please, just please leave. Just please go away. It reminds me of that video of the woman who's screaming at the bear. Don't break my kayak! Oh, please, bear! Uh, anyway, I just thought that was funny to have that, you know. I wonder if that's just an Iranian thing. Just fuck snakes. I mean, I think a lot of people are like, just fuck snakes. But I think in particular, that's just funny because there is that sort of cultural thing behind it. Yeah, Interestingly enough, the natural habitat of the Seamurg is uh, water. And so she basically lives on this tree, like on the tree of life, in this giant ocean. And then that's just where she hangs out most of the time. Um, She's coppery in color, which is making me like, when you were talking about Pokemon, it kind of makes Mm. me think of Ho-Oh, the Pokemon from like Heart or uh, Golden Silver, I think it was. You had Lugia and Ho-Oh, and Ho-Oh was a copper-colored phoenix peacock. Alright, anything beyond the first 150 and I'm lost. Uh, come on, dude. You can do better than I'm that. <laughs> I'll send you a picture or something <laughs> later. Okay. Um. So, in Persian, in Farsi, uh, C is 30, and I know I said, everyone, that I am half Persian. My dad did not speak Farsi around me after, like, age four or five, really. I, at one point, was fluent, and he stopped speaking it, and so I just lost all of it, almost. I know how to say, like, some phrases and names of things, like family names, but other than that, so... I apologize if my pronunciation is off, especially when I was just like, I'm half Persian. I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) I can say all the important phrases. I can say grandma, grandpa, uncle, salt and pepper. Hello. All the important things. Uh, Silly watermelon. That's Mamanjun. Mamanjun and Agajun is grandma, grandpa. Salam Chitori is hello, how are you? Okay. I just couldn't remember it. I saw Chitori and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's Salam. Like, 
most other Middle Eastern languages. I just couldn't okay. remember it. Uh, what are the other things? I know how to say, what, grandma, grandpa, salt, pepper, uncle. uncle. Um, hello, how are you? Death to America. Oh, yeah. Silly watermelon. <laughs> um, son of a bitch, basically. Um, and, oh, and so uh, one of the things, I'm going to, like, edit all of this out, but I just want to share this one with you. So, you know that feeling? I love these so much. Like, you know how you'll see in Iceland, we have this phrase that means, like, when you're sad and you want to be left alone, but you also want to be around people, but you don't want, you know, like that kind of stuff. Usually German. We have a two, but yes, I know exactly. We have a two word phrase for it. So there's one in, in Farsi that is for when you, and I'm like, ah, my people, when you want to eat more, but you're worried that it will be rude. Like if you ask Uh, for more, I know that. And so it's a it's called tarofing in in Farsi, and it's where you like tell someone no, you don't want any more when you really do, and so they'll just tell you to don't don't do it, like don't tarof, don't tarof, just take more. <laughs> they'll just like keep putting food on your plate. Oh man, I like those people. But yeah, every time I've talked to someone who's like a foodie, I'm like, yeah, my my culture has a thing for this, and they're just like. I've always needed to know how to describe that. <laughs> See, my, my, I'm not a foodie. I'm just a fat girl. Like, I just want to eat all the time. I like all kinds of food, <laughs> but I don't think it's necessarily because I'm a foodie. It's because I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> Please keep Okay, eating. anyway. <laughs> I'm terrofing over here. So C is 30, and even though... It's not historically related in any kind of, like, actual myth. Um, The number 30 appears frequently inside of the mythology of the Seamurg. So it'll be described as, like, the Seamurg is as large as 30 birds. Or as colorful as 30 birds. Or can pick up as much as 30 birds. Like, it's always revolves back to that 30 number when describing it. Okay. It is also considered to be super duper old. The The story is that it has seen the destruction of the world three times over. Wow. It possesses knowledge of all ages, and one legend states that every 1700 years it plunges itself into flames to be reborn. And this is thought to be one of the earlier ideas of a phoenix um, that was actually written down. Mm-hmm. So the Seamurg is considered to purify the land and waters, and it bestows fertility upon it. Uh, she is the union between the earth and the sky, serving as a mediator and messenger between the two. Okay. So animals and things that stay on land versus animals and things that stay in the sky, she can go to both, and so she works between them. Um, she, like I said before, she roosts in the tree of life, which stands in the middle of the world sea. This tree has potent medicine and is considered all healing. All other plants in the world come from it. And when the Seamurg took flight from the tree for the first time, 
it's it shook the seeds loose and they traveled all over the world creating all plants in existence and introduced that cures to all diseases can be found naturally in plants there you go yeah the relationship between the sea merg and home which is the world tree is very close um home is also represented as in art as a healing bird and so it's seen as kind of the mate to the Seamurg. So this is actually, the Seamurg has appeared several times in really important um, Persian literature. And so one of the most famous appearances is in an epic poem by Ferdowsi, which is called the Shahnameh, uh, which is translated to the Book of Kings. So in the Shahnameh, the prince named Zal is born albino and believing his son to be the spawn of devils, King Sa'am abandoned him as an infant on Mount Alborz. And his cries were heard by the tender, gentle-hearted Seamurg, who was roosting at the top of the mountain. And she loved and raised Zal, bestowing upon him a wealth of knowledge. And when he grew into a man, he yearned to be among humans. Um, you know, like he naturally were. He's been raised by a giant bird. Granted, an all-knowing bird with a potentially human face. Yeah. But still a bird. Like, um, So though it sat in the seamurg, she gave him three golden feathers and instructed him to burn them if he ever needed her help. Uh, which is a common thing you'll see throughout the seamurg mythology. And probably a lot of uh, Middle Eastern legends in general is that, you know, bestowing of this thing in order to ask for help. Three wishes with genies, three, you know, feathers with the Seamurg, like Mm -hmm. it's always always something in order to get help or to get a boon of some sort. Um, So Prince Zal returned to the humans and fell in love with a woman named Rudaba. Rudaba became pregnant with a son, but the labor was so prolonged and terrible that Zal was certain his wife would die in labor. Uh, when Rudaba was near death, Zal decided to call on the Seamurg. She appeared and instructed him on how to do a cesarean section, which saved Rudaba's life and the life of his son. His son went on to be one of the world's one of the greatest Persian heroes, Rostam. So, the idea is that the Seamurg has shown someone for the first time how to do a cesarean section go on in the future to save countless lives of women and children um through the procedure instead of just you know letting them both die or one die Mm -hmm. um the seamurg was also in a 12th century poem entitled the conference of birds by farid undin qatar Uh, In the poem, the birds of the world gather to choose their new king. The hopo, the wisest bird, suggests that they elect the seamurg, but they have to find her first. The hopo leads the birds, each a representative of a human fault that stops humans from gaining enlightenment. Uh, When the group of 30 birds finally reach the seamurg, they all find that the lake shows their own reflection, indicating that they are all the king of the birds and should proceed to govern themselves from what i understand i have not read this but i want okay i also really want to read the shanama i've heard of it but i've never actually like picked it up 
Um, in Kurdish lore, a hero rescues Seamurg's young by killing a snake. And, as, and sometimes it's killing a snake, sometimes it's killing a dragon. As a reward, the Seamurg gave him three of her feathers for the hero to burn and summon the Seamurg for, for aid. Um, later, he uses the feathers to have the Seamurg carry him off to a distant land. In another version, which is a little bit more badass, he summons her to carry him out of the underworld. Ooh. Like, instead of being like, uh, give me a ride to a different country, please. Like, <laughs> um, so that is what I could find for the Seamurk. Not a ton, so which is why I did some, some of the other birds. Um, so moving on to the Homa. This is a mythical bird that, according to legend, never lands on the ground and instead flies high above the ground and is invisible. Okay. It is represented in multiple Middle Eastern countries. Uh, much like the Seamurg, it kind of pops up in different areas of the world where the Persian and Ottoman Empire extended to. Um, it is similar to the Seamurg being phoenix-like, allowing flames to consume it every few hundred years. Okay. The Homa, um, male and female, are represented in the same body. So each side has one wing and one leg of each gender. So it's like split between male and female. Hmm. Um, it is considered to be a compassionate bird and a bird of great fortune, since its shadows or touch is said to be lucky. Okay. Catching one is beyond even the wild one's wildest imagination, but even just seeing it is said to make one happy for the rest of their lives. I bet you Jax could catch it. <laughs> His reflexes are so fast. Well, yeah, and he wouldn't even see him because he stands so still. That's right. <laughs> I love that meme with the Harry Potter and the Cloak of Invisibility. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Drax's face. Or Dax's face. Oh, man. Yeah, so the <laughs> the Homa and Drax could just have an invisibility off. They could. See who could be more invisible, better, or something. Okay, so the legend is that the homa cannot be captured alive and the person and a person who kills one is said to die within 40 days um so okay. catching one is pretty bad pretty bad idea to try to catch one the ottoman empire refers to the homa as a bird of paradise and early european descriptions of birds of paradise share the much older description of the homa so the idea that the more western countries see the see the depictions of this bird and consider it also their representation of a bird of paradise the homa also appears in the conference of birds like the seamurg um, but he refuses to undertake the mission to find the next king of the birds because if if it left it would steal away the opportunity of humans to find luck in seeing it also, some cultures and time periods considered seeing a Homa as a sign that that person would become an, the next king. Like, it's that lucky to see oh, wow. it. I want to be the next king. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'd be, a, I'd be a good king. 
Snickers for everybody. Did you say sneakers for everybody? I said Snickers. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I was close at least. I mean, Snickers and sneakers. And alliteration for everyone. Whether you want it or not. Um, So then the last of the Persian mythological birds I found was the Pari. So the Pari are exquisite winged spirits and they're supposed to be like incredibly beautiful like whoa super pretty they almost from the pictures i saw they look more like a interpretation of like an angel like a human with big bird wings and less like a bird but i still considered them bird-like so don't at me okay Um, They are mischievous beings that have been denied access to paradise until they've paid a penance for their sins. So they're basically just trying to right their wrongs um, and sort themselves out. Uh, Persian mythology of the creature take on a more beautiful and gentle opinion of them. And often poets would compare beautiful women to Pari to make it clear basically just how hot they were. Oh, damn. (laughs) Uh, In Shanama, the Book of Kings, again, um, a divine being took on the form of a pari to warn the first man and his son of oncoming demonic threats. In this epic, paris join forces to defeat the demon king and his son. In Rostam's part, Rostam was one of the heroes in the Shanama, the son of Zal, and uh, Rudaba, and he referred to Princess Tamina as being pari-faced. Like, she is so beautiful, she looks like a pari. She has a pari face. Okay. Resting pari face. I want that. (laughs) RPF. (laughs) Pari were the target of lower-level evil creatures who would try to lock them away in cages. And try to keep them from uh, achieving the penance for the sins where they could get into paradise. Okay. During the spread of Islam, the Pari were seen as a good sort of jinn. So they were like the the good side of the jinn versus, you know, the rest of the jinn. All right. And in a Persian version of the Quran, the Paris are beautiful female spirits created by God. Instead of the mischievous sort of creatures that were being paid a penance for their sin, it seems like they have, you know, come full circle and are now sacred creations of God versus, you know, fighting demon armies to try to yeah. fix their sins. But that's what I could find as far as um, Persian Iranian mythology went. That was enough to kind of talk about. There were a lot of other things, but they were kind of smaller. And then every true crime case I tried to look at was just like, this person who, you know, sexually assaulted and murdered 30 children, or this one who did the same but to 40 children. And I'm like, how about neither? Thanks. (laughs) And then I was, like you said, I was trying to find a good girl power story, and it was like, woman kills her rapist. And then gets executed. And I was like, yeah. fuck. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's not a, I mean, 
there are a lot of issues still with human rights uh, sort of stuff in the Middle East, and that's just the way it is right now. Yeah, unfortunately. With the birds and the bird ladies. I appreciate that that was a good lady story. Made me feel like finally the lady was being respected in the world. (laughs) Are you... Have you watched uh, The Dark Tourist on Netflix? I have considered it, uh, but I can't say that I have actually sat down and watched it. So it's this docuseries and this journalist from New Zealand, David Ferrier, he claims to have always been drawn to the weirder side of life. Does that sound familiar? I've heard he has a charming accent. Oh, he does. But when he says that right at the beginning, I'm like, hello, David Ferrier. I have also always been drawn to the weirder side of life. And it like (laughs) shows his apartment and it's got like skulls and shit all around. And I'm like, hello, David Ferrier. I also have skulls and shit in my house. So (laughs) he goes on these crazy adventures and it's all documented. He meets like the first episode, he goes to Colombia and he meets Pablo Escobar's personal hitman. Um, Jeez. In the next episode, he goes to Japan and he just like chills out in Fukushima and checks out the radioactive nuclear disaster site. And they all have their little counters and it's like, uh, this, these numbers are getting really scary. And he's just chilling. He's just like, whatever, here I am doing dark tourism. It's a really super interesting show. And if you haven't watched it, I would recommend it. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, in one of the episodes he goes, it's called the stands episode. So he goes to like Kazakhstan, I think is what it was. And there's a, there's a crater that was blown into the ground by like nuclear testing and it's filled with water now and he and this guy just go for a swim in this lake you know like you do yep (laughs) so what i wanted to do for this episode was look into some dark tourism destinations in iran um some of the suggestions were sort of hard to swallow pills so that one example was the kasar prison of tehran which i hope i'm saying correctly um it's it's been repurposed into a museum sort of talking about the people who were tortured and executed there and this took me down a rabbit hole because dark tourism is defined by google as tourism directed to places that are identified with death and suffering and that seems kind of gross right yeah and so i'm seeing pictures of people photographed like in front of auschwitz smiling with their thumbs up like that is (laughs) i feel like i've heard that started to be a problem too that like auschwitz and the different concentration camps that are like now museums are like please stop coming here if you're an instagram influencer like this is not what this is for yeah and i feel like there's a certain intent behind it like you have to go to these places if, if you're into dark tourism, that's awesome. And I think there's definitely something to be learned from that. But you have to go and have the... The respect. Yeah. Like, these are places where people suffered. People have died here. Oh, yeah. Like, I know um, one of the best representations that I can think of that I've actually been to is I went to Salem, Massachusetts, oh, yeah. um, during Halloween... And so it's all, you know, over, super overdone, like, ooky spooky, like haunted kitchen. houses. 
Yeah, it's super kitschy. But then you get to, like, the memorial and the cemetery, and there's no decorations. There's no tour going on. There's no music or anything. It's completely solemn, and it's, like, 100% respected. And I've never walked into a space like I walked into the memorial and it just felt somber like it was just quiet it was almost like there was I mean because it's almost like one of those places we have one there's one in Tulsa where it's like if you go into the center of the circle you can't hear anything from the outside Mm. of it for some reason because it's just like a weird you know spot in the world or whatever and that's how the Salem Memorial felt like walking into where all of those benches are out. You know, if you've ever seen it, they're just like stone slabs that are sticking out from the wall. And then they have each person, each victim's name and when they died and um, how they died just sticking out from the walls. And it's just, you walk into that area and it just is quiet and it feels like no no one is talking in there. No one is doing anything but, like, taking it in, basically. And then the cemetery is right next to it. But, you know, the bodies are... Supposedly the bodies aren't over there. Bodies may not have ever actually been recovered after right. some stuff I've listened to and read about. But the uh, Hathorne, Judge Hathorne's buried there and they actually have have encased his tombstone in steel because people kept breaking it and it's seriously it's just broken completely in half across it from where people have broken it in the past wow but yeah there was that's i thought it was super cool there's all this decoration and all these people in costumes and haunted houses that will just like pop up like on roads Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. But that area of Salem, they don't fuck with. They don't put decorations up. They don't make it part of the show, you know, well, which I thought was. That's really great. Really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Because all I've ever seen is like the party part of town when I've seen pictures because I haven't ever been. Um, and it, it's always like been a little unsettling for me for that very reason. But I'm glad to hear that that was the case that you go there and it's exactly what it's meant to be which is a place of reverence and sort of somber yeah it was very it was very eerie like it had that you know it made you stop and kind of realize especially when you walk in and you see all of these stones and you're like oh right like each one of these is a representation of someone who was wrongly put to death there's so many yeah And you can hear the names and hear the story and hear everything. But until you actually see and can visualize like a person sitting on each of these benches where their name is and you're like, that's a lot. Yeah. It suddenly becomes a lot more than just names on a piece of paper. Well, that was what brought me to Iran was this dark tourism idea. Um, And so where we're heading is the central desert. And I hope I'm saying this right because... I don't have any familiarity with Farsi. <laughs> so this is the central desert is called the Dashti Kavir. I hope that's right. Cause it's like Dasht hyphen E 
Is it dash day? Yeah, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound wrong. All right. Well, specifically, dash, it's probably dash day. Dash day. All right. We'll go with dash day. Yeah. Um, specifically, this is a region called the Rige Jin or Dune of the Jin. Um, it is known to be one of the scariest places in Iran. It's about three thousand eight hundred square kilometers of desert and salt marshes, located in the province province of Semnan. It is believed, or was believed, in some location it is still believed, that no one could survive the desert due to evil spirits that lived there. People would go missing or disappear completely, and some have even called it the Bermuda Triangle of Iran. I I think that that's, that's one of those, like, I think there's a lot more Bermuda Triangle-like places than just the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, yeah. But continue. No, I agree. Well, <laughs> that'll be a whole episode, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because there's, uh, I know, one in the U.S. at least. Um, their fears are not necessarily unfounded considering the stories of the djinn in these parts of the world. Djinn supposedly thrive in places like this, deserted areas like the Titral District in Pakistan, uh, sinkhole wastes that are in Cardo, Somalia. And I think Jin could probably have their own episode too, to be honest. But because there probably. is a lot here, I'm just going to give our listeners a little quick overview of why this is so fucking scary. And these guys are just kind of awful. They can possess you. They can be invisible. They can shapeshift. They're made of fire. And they can impregnate you. Five reasons Great. why you shouldn't fuck with a djinn or fuck a djinn. So it's said that in the neighboring villages, they can hear a strange howling, only furthering the belief that this place is damned. But super pra- uh, supernatural presence or no, the dunes are dangerous. There's no roads. There's no cell phone coverage, no water, very little vegetation from what I could see. It's all salt and sand. Caravans, uh, back in the oldie days, uh, avoided it in their travels due to the stories of the ghosts and how uh, spirits would lead people to the heart of the desert to their death. And in fact, it hasn't been fully, it was not fully explored until about 15 years ago in uh, 2005. There, wow. are, there are a lot of active sand hills with little to no plant life. So it's easy to see how the sands could cover up these salt marshes and someone could get sucked in and sink and be left to die of starvation or thirst. Yeah. And that's like, that's the weird part for me. It's like salt and how it like uh, changes water. So there's obviously some kind of moisture that can help move people into these sinkholes of salt marsh, but there's not anything to drink because of the salt. So I, I wouldn't even know. First of all, I hate sand, so I'm not going there anyway. But but it always just like fascinates me that there is somehow moisture in this literal desert because you can yeah. be in quicksand and die, essentially. So there was a Swedish guy. He was a famous desert explorer in the early 20th century. Um, his name was Sven Hayden. And like this was his thing. He would go to Iran he would explore deserts. He looked at the Regijin, and he went, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Alphonse Gabriel was an Austrian geographer and writer and was able to cross the southern tail of the region in about the 1930s. 
And like I said, as of uh, 2005, it had been pretty fully explored and documented by an Iranian man named Ali Parsa. He had started his study in uh, 1995. He has this fantastically 1998 style website where it's like all documented. <laughs> it looks like he put it together on Angel Fire. It's amazing. I was about to say it's on Angel Fire. Yeah. So, Geo GeoCities. GeoCities, exactly. So he he writes about his ex- explorations and how he, you know, he met somebody there who was interested in it and had stories about it. And so they took an airplane and they flew over top of the the desert just to see what was down there and try to get an idea of where are these spirits that everybody's talking about? Ha ha, you can't see them. Y'all are stupid. <laughs> he takes a total of like eight trips, fully documented. And it's been a fairly popular place for dark tourists and extreme adventure seekers to travel to ever since. Uh, there's some evidence that the howling from the dunes is just wind blowing through structures created by the sand. But who can really say? No one on these trips has ever reported any supernatural sightings. Where's the fun in that? Where's the fun in like, oh, well, we can just explain it all away with science. Right. So a lot of people, I think, go there with the intention of being like, I want to find the mysteries of the the riggage and and sort of like try to figure it out, which I think is part of what's probably fun for the people who are like the extreme adventure types. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things I will say is that some of the photos that I saw, there was a guy who documented his trips and photos, and I swear the sky looked completely unreal. Like, it was so fucking beautiful because it's all just barren land, and then you get this sky that's, like, violet to dark indigo, and it's just full of stars. And he was like, I promise you none of these photos have been altered. This is just literally how this place looks. And it looks completely unreal, like I said. So I can understand how someone could be like, that's fucking supernatural. (laughs) I wish, I'm going to have to send you the link because it is super beautiful. And I was like, so the idea that beauty and danger can go hand in hand is kind of, I mean, that's one of the biggest things about folklore. So you see something so dangerous and so beautiful and you need to warn people not to go in maybe that's the answer but that's the appeal for dark tourism but I just want to say again like we talked about Salem at length and that was fantastic getting to hear that but you really need to consider the intent of which you're going no smiling selfies in Pripyat Chernobyl's fallout zone is not a place to grin and post on Instagram it's in poor taste agreed so yeah villages around this place still believe that it's haunted and uh, one one person I read said that Ali Parsa, uh, because he traveled it, he must have broken the spell. So, so oh, that that he broke it open, or that well, that he broke he it because sealed he it was up. able to to travel it and to explore it. So when he went through it, he must have broken the spell. Hmm. I both love and kind of cringe when I think of people that are so desperately latched on to superstition like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like one of those things of, I love that you fucking believe that, but also, this is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> but that's what I have about the Riggage Inn. It's uh, a scary-ass place that might have uh, weird wish-granting demons that want to impregnate you. Uh, gross. <laughs> you don't want to have a, a gin baby? Wish-granting. Uh, no. 
I read that no, I'm good. they'll send them to a, an island near China, and then they start to eat people. The babies do. Oh, good. I mean, that's that's what I would hope for any of my spawn. <laughs> Go to China, eat people, be gay, do <laughs> <Yeah. crime. laughs> Question marks profit. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't a super lengthy episode. It's a, it was hard nah. to find things for me. It's like a lot of it is oral tradition, just like I found with the Inuit legends. A lot of people yeah. weren't writing down their experiences other than lots of people wandered in. Not many walked out. Yeah. It was like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Nobody <laughs> ever goes in. And nobody ever comes out. Oh, I, th- I thought we were going to talk about OSHA violations. Well, I mean that too. And, you know, um, <laughs> slave labor. Yeah, child labor laws. I mean... I don't think the Oompa Loompas were children. Oh, uh, then, I don't know, child neglect? Child endangerment? Child endangerment, for sure. There's There's gotta be something to, like, all of us drowning a kid in chocolate, <laughs> accidentally making a kid tiny, having to juice a child. That just sounds wrong. Yeah, but that's what they did. <laughs> And then, like, sending another child toward a giant industrial fan, Look, dropping I... a child into an incinerator, like... I still gotta say, up. Gene Wilder, as Willy Wonka, was one of the most beautiful and terrifying things. He was like the reggae gin. <laughs> he... I agree. And then, and then Johnny Depp was like, hold my beer and watch this, and it was like, no, you're just scary. <laughs> Just yeah, you're you're scary. just scary and somehow don't have that terrifying, traumatizing boat scene. <laughs> there is no way of knowing. <laughs> somehow the sequel that was was scarier than that, somehow. I'm not <laughs> sure. It's probably because they just used the same guy for all of the Oompa Loompas. Yeah, I didn't And so it was like just that. even more unsettling. But, yes. So, I hope you enjoyed that little chat. Like I said, I there wasn't a whole lot to find, and I think that's mostly because, especially in places that do hold on to superstition like that, it can sometimes be hard to find things written down about the scarier parts of things. But I still feel better. Yeah, I was trying. I was trying just to find like haunted places and Same. stuff, and it was just like, eh, nope. So this has been a sort of short episode, and you know, that's gonna come with some of these. I think just for. Depends on how much we leave, I leave in, I guess. That's fair. But <laughs> I, I think that we're going to have that with a certain number of episodes purely for the fact that not everything's going to be documented in some of the, I don't want to say, what's the word I'm looking for? Less developed. One of the things I actually did look into was the increased number of tourism in Iran and how people are starting to feel less scared going there. Yeah. Um, which I think is great. Their um, tourism is really picking up. This one woman, uh, she was French, and she was saying that she stayed on somebody's couch. They apparently have a couch surfing surfing app where you don't pay anything, but people are interested in meeting other people, like foreigners, and so they offer up their couches so that you can come and have conversations about your different perspectives and things like that. That's cool. And I said, that is fucking dark terrorism if i ever heard it yeah well (laughs) that sounds terrifying and that's like one of the things with um my family always saying like my dad was always say you know you can't 
Iran is full of the nicest people you'll ever meet, but their their government is what's scary. Like that's right. their governing body is the scary part. The people are the nicest people you'll ever meet on earth. And that so far for everyone that I've met in my family is 100% true. They're all super, super kind, gentle, nice people. Um, and you know, it's Iran and the Middle East have so many interesting things that I think get overlooked because of how much of the, you know, American fear of Western fear of terrorism and things like that, that there's stories and information that gets overlooked. So, like, there's so many different layers. And, of course, there are things that need to be fixed. There are things that could be so much better. But I think that so much of Iran and Persian heritage get overshadowed by the perceptions of what people consider for those areas. And And on, on both sides, I think that there's misconceptions of the Western world in Iran and there's misconceptions of the Middle East in general in the U.S. And we're slowly starting to see those walls breaking down, but it's just taking time. And I hope that nothing happens to cause them to be built back up again. Yeah. And I, I would have to say I'm not innocent of that. I definitely feel like there was... I am not proud to say this, but I will tell you that there was one time it was, gosh, I want to say it was like 2009. I got on a plane and I had a Middle Eastern gentleman sit next to me. And I had that moment of just white person terror of holy shit. (laughs) And I was sitting in my house. I'm like, you bitch, you bitch, you preach to everybody to be so fucking like accepting. And here you are. And I just sat there and I was like, all right, this is happening. And that fucking guy was the nicest man I ever met. When we were taking off, he he was, like, lowering my tray for me on the plane seat next to me. And he, like, passed my drink over to me. And he was talking to me the whole time. And he was just a super chill dude. And I fucking still hate myself for that moment. Because I was like, what a judgmental bitch I'm being. And, I mean, I was all of, what, 20 years old at the time. So... You know, you can put a little bit of youthful ignorance in there. But damn, did I feel like an asshat after that moment. <sighs> Glad I got that off my chest, though. <laughs> and there's there's going to be things like that for anything. Like, for any... It's, it's self-preservation. It's that moment of, I know I shouldn't do this, but in this moment, I'm scared. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with media sensationalism which I'll get into a little bit in my next episode. Well, and it's, it's, it's other things too. Like I'm, if I'm sitting in my car alone, I'm more than likely I will already have my doors locked. But if I see a woman walking past or walking toward my car, I am less likely to lock my doors than if it's a man. It's self-preservation. It's nothing again, you know, there's nothing saying that that woman also couldn't want to hurt me. It's mm-hmm. that underlying fear that's been indoctrinated into me of just like, I am not safe. I should lock my doors. Like, yeah. and it's the, the well, understanding that it's a problem and the understanding that like, oh, wow, I shouldn't be like that. I'm going to make a, a conscious effort to not be. That's exactly. where that's where the difference lies in oh, no, all Middle Eastern people are terrorists. Islam is a religion of extremists, blah, blah, blah. And then not 
actually stopping to understand the religion or understand the people or understand why maybe they don't trust, like why maybe Iran doesn't trust the U.S. Maybe it's because we basically put Iranian Hitler into power and then was just like, oh no, we can't help you because he's giving us oil at ridiculously cheap prices. So we're going to just continue to ignore, you know, the systematic destruction of different subcultures of Iran until it's yeah until you cause a revolution and then you're the monsters you know you're the extremists and like and then and then Trump with the Kurds just recently oh god yeah fuck that (laughs) so yes we could go on and on about how it's just fucked up the way that those the the Middle East in general is presented to our country of the United States or even Western culture. I feel like there is definitely a sort of way they want to present it to us. And it's an effort of consciously looking out, looking at other perspectives and making yourself more aware that is important. Yeah. And, and I certainly think from that, that should be my, have you seen the, the thing where it's like, this is me in 2009 and this is me now. I feel like yeah. scared little racist Casey is there and I'm here now as like this mature understanding person. I don't think you were being racist. I think you were being 19. <laughs> well, I'm a white person, so everything I do is racist. <laughs> okay. So thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining us as we talked about some weird shit in Iran. Next week, we fly off to jolly old England, where we will seek out some of their strange and unusual stories. We encourage you all to reach out with your ideas, feedback, stories of your own at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. If you're sending in a story, we just ask that you put in listener story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little bit more easily. And man, we want anything. You got ghost stories. We want it. You tried to marry a cryptid. We want it. You tried to marry a ghost of a cryptid. I definitely want that. Have you ever had a genie pop out of a lamp? I want to know. How did you get around those three wishes? Did you ever have a half-genie baby come out of you and have to send it to an island in China where it started to eat people? Please tell us. Uh, But yeah, if you lived in a haunted house, if you had a true crime happen down your road, if you're six degrees of separation from Jeffrey Dahmer, let us know. I want to read your story. Um, You can... I was going to say, I was going to jump in and help you out, but because I know the Twitter handle now. Yeah, I know. That's why I was going to be like, uh, the Twitter. (laughs) Uh, You can also find us on Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcast. Uh, or, or our own accounts, uh, Roya Rampage, R-O-Y-A, Roya Rampage, or Calamity Casey, C-A-S-E-Y, uh, where we will post weird shit of our personal lives. Uh, we also now have a Twitter that we're using. Uh, it is at underscore strange unusual because Twitter has a weird thing about handles. So please uh, check us out there and we will try to be interactive with all of y'all, all y'all, um, and I use guys. All right, so you can also find our podcast just because we are using the Anchor app. If you've listened all the way to the end, you'll hear the advertisement that Anchor puts on there. But you can listen to Strange and Unusual, Strange and Unusual at Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and we're also on um, Apple Podcasts now. 
despite Anchor not telling me that we were. So we are on there oh. as well now. Um, please, if there's an option for you to give us a review, give us a five-star review. But yeah, let, give us some give us some feedback, give us some ratings, give us some reviews so that we can continue to grow this podcast and maybe make it, you know, more of our lives than it already is. I'd really like to get there with it. All right. So tune in next Wednesday for our episode in England and we will see you then. I hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving and didn't kill any Native Americans. Eat the rich. Eat the rich. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny that you said that because I'm actually going to be saying that in the next episode. (laughs) A lot.